This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Look, one way of interpreting our story from afar is that we are these adventuring, intrepid people who moved into a foreign country during a war and just continued this cowboy, cavalier kind of behavior. That's not true. And it's not how it's felt on the ground. What it's felt like on the ground is we moved into a new neighborhood and then that neighborhood became our home. And those people became our friends and our family and the people we love most in this world. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jeremy Courtney. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. Since 2007, it has been working in the Middle East to build coalitions that bring peace and understanding across difference. Jeremy Courtney, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me. I'm really interested in hearing about your story. You and your wife, Jessica, moved to Iraq in 2006. Is that correct? Yeah, we actually moved in first days of 2007. I started going in by myself in 2006. Okay, and what, tell me why it is that you were going there and what you hoped to accomplish by going there. You had a young daughter at the time, all of these things. Yeah, we had become moved by the humanitarian situation that we were seeing you know, playing out there. By 2006, the wheels were off the bus. We were at the height of sectarian conflict in Iraq. The U.S. intervention had been found wanting. And we, while the U.S. was welcomed as a a kind of liberator and a hero early on, by 2006, people were sick of the the lack of services. And we became, as Americans, kind of victims of our own brand, victims of our own marketing. We had promised freedom and democracy and, you know, capitalistic success and wealth and two years in, and obviously that (laughs) had not been attained and the people were just over it. And there was a lot more I could say about that. But, you know, long story short, it resulted in a humanitarian crisis. And we moved in hoping to help. Well, let's look a little bit at that history, because I think that the context in which you were going into Iraq was the in the wake of 9-11. But there's a longer history there that my listeners may or may not be familiar with. And that is the first Gulf War, 1990 and, and onward. It took Iraq, which at the time, and this is my understanding, and if I'm incorrect, please do correct me, that Iraq had some of the best infrastructure, in particular medical and hospital care, in the Middle East. And we basically bombed all of that away. And so when we're talking about Iraq in 2006, we're talking about a land that has already been severely compromised in its infrastructure and was trying to rebuild from that and then got caught up in a second wave of aggression that we were a part of. It, first of all, is my history correct? Yes and no. The, the spirit of what you're saying is largely right. I think the details matter in this way. You have to go back to the 70s to be able to say those grand things about Iraq and its infrastructure. And it starts getting decrepit and decimated throughout the 80s as Saddam goes to war with Iran in the wake of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. 
And for those eight years, from 80 to 88, Saddam and Iran embark on such a grand scale war that Saddam takes out tremendous debt, embarks on massive overreach in terms of building projects and things like that, starts slowly cannibalizing certain things to support the war effort and other grand ego projects. And by the time the U.S., by the time he invades Kuwait in the early 90s and the U.S. strikes back, then we we impart this huge sanctions regime unlike the world has ever seen, the most violent sanctions regime that the world has ever seen. And it's arguably the sanctions regime that decimates the country more than the bombs. Uh, it's important to me to say that as someone who has now lived in Iraq and loves Iraqis for, for so much of my life, as I see us trying to apply similar sanctions tactics to North Korea, to Iran, to wherever, sanctions are often far, far more violent than we realize. I, I grew up under the Clinton presidency and remember thinking just my history was wrong, but my, my recollection as I experienced it as a child was that Bush was the guy who went to war and Clinton was the guy who oversaw sanctions. That's not accurate, but I remember thinking Bush was the bad guy for going to war. Clinton was the good guy for using soft power. And now coming out of it, I've just come to realize that, no, the, the sanctions were every bit as violent as the bombs themselves. And we should also say that Clinton continued the, for sure. the, the regime of bombing. 100%. Yeah. And so on Fridays, Friday being a holy day for Muslims, we would bomb routinely on Fridays. Is that correct? I was too young to follow the details, but okay. that would not surprise me. <laughs> yeah. But but so, you know, the and what I'm hearing you saying is, first of all, the kind of simple narrative of good guys, bad guys in terms of our leadership. All of our leadership has been implicated in the decimation and the ruination of the economy, the infrastructure, and the the overall quality of life of these people in Iraq. Yeah. And we should say that there were there were bad people in Iraq, but the people that were most impacted, if I'm understanding correctly, were not belligerents. They were innocents. Is that fair to say? Correct. And those are the people that you, in 2006, 2007, when you moved to Iraq with your family, with your wife, with your young daughter, those were the people that you met and you had fellowship with. Yeah. So what was your experience of going there and having that fellowship? What most surprised you when you arrived? How, to what degree the simple narratives didn't hold up. I mean, when I moved in... I was still fully of the mind that Kurds were essentially good, Arabs were essentially bad, Sunni Arab Muslims were essentially bad, Shia Arab Muslims were essentially with Iran. You know, the Kurds were, quote-unquote, moderate, which was a, a pejorative way, essentially, of saying not really all that Muslim and therefore our kind of people that we could get along with. And... I found Kurds to be more warm and hospitable than I had imagined. I found some Kurds to be more belligerent and rejectionist than I imagined. I found Sunni and Shia Arab Muslims to be more welcoming and kind and open and hospitable. Everything just got complicated, and it was beautiful. <laughs> I love that you said that the complicated is beautiful because now we're in my kind of territory. I'm going to ask a question, and you don't have to answer it, but I'm interested if there was anything that motivated you to go there besides secular humanitarian desire to help other people. In a way, yes. So maybe it's helpful to jump back a couple of years in the story. 
I was highly affected by the terror attacks on September 11th. I was a young man. I had literally just graduated from college. I had just gotten married the week after that graduation. And I was coming of age in a world that was supposed to be mine for the taking. And then within, you know, just a few months of all that, our national narrative is shot through. And I now look back and liken it to the destruction of the Jewish temple where our, our faith and our sovereign and our place of worship are now essentially no longer. In our case, it was two temples. It was the, the temples to capitalism in New York City and the temples to national defense in Washington, D.C. But these are the places where we worshiped as Americans in, in many ways. And they were now shot through and in rubble. And I think with that, a lot of our ego, a lot of our story, a lot of our sense of security and safety was shot through. So I was easily weaponized, I believe, in that vulnerable state after 9-11. And a lot of my friends were weaponized. Many of us grabbed guns and went off to war. In my case, that wasn't really my style. I grabbed a Bible and went off into the war on terror as a missionary, a Christian missionary. My intentions, as I knew them and experienced at the time, were were pure and patriotic and loving. I wanted to save America. I wanted to save the Muslims. And I wanted to save America from the Muslims. And so I went off as a missionary and first lived in Turkey. That's where we first kind of dipped our toe in the water and learned, met our first Muslims, learned what it would be like to live among Muslims, became minorities for the first time became the people who stood out in a crowd rather than the ones who always blended in. And it had a profound impact on me. I'll pause there and let you pick that apart a little bit before I say the next thing. Sure. So you, in this conversation, you've self-identified as a Christian and as a person who I would imagine would identify on the more evangelical wing of Christianity because your calling was to mission work and to bring that work to the places where you felt needed saving. That's what I heard you saying. First of all, is that a fair characterization in what I heard, or would you say it differently? That's fair of that time in my life, for sure. Okay. And so we can talk through the conversation about how that may have shifted over time. But in terms of the surprise, you said you were surprised by how your simple narratives had become more complex. Was that true politically, simply, or was it also true in terms of the if you will, the religious narratives, the biblical narratives, did they become more complex as you put boots on the ground there as well? They definitely became more complicated. Tell me a little bit about how that complicated for you. Well, I, I think I think theology done in a vacuum is inherently impoverished. And so we can get fulsome or apparently fulsome theories and philosophies and systems and systematic accounts of how it all happened. But when we do that void of alternative voices, giving witness to how those systematic theologies and those puzzle pieces that some of us have intricately pieced together, when we don't have alternative voices telling us what that means for them, or how it appears to them, or how it plays out, or how it has for centuries played out for them, we are missing something profound in the human experience. To use thoroughly Christian language, we're, we're missing a whole part of the body trying to inform us 
about what it feels like to be a part of this body, you know, when you only develop policies and theories and theologies that attend to the right arm and give no care to the left arm, well, naturally, one arm is going to get stronger and one arm is going to atrophy. And so my entire theological training and existence had been done in a vacuum. And it wasn't until landing in Turkey for the first time, experiencing Muslims, being a minority myself in a way that I started to, I, I was forced to poke holes. My theologies didn't hold up. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Jeremy Courtney. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Jeremy Courtney. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition, which works across the Middle East and indeed around the world to help to build bridges against conflict and to create direct aid where there is turmoil. So let's talk for a moment about the founding of the Preemptive Love Coalition. So you were in Turkey, and then you had your eyes sort of opened to the complexities of the situation, both religiously and politically. And then you and your family chose to move in 2006, 2007 to Iraq. And then soon after that, you were founding the Preemptive Love Coalition. Tell me a little bit about that process, what it is that led from being kind of an individual, isolated node of mission work or reconciliation to the vision to have a larger impact than that. Mm. Yeah, so I, I write about this in my new book called Love Anyway, but long story short, I had a profound spiritual awakening during those days in Turkey. The upshot of which is that I saw myself in like my mind's eye in a kind of prayerful state. I, I saw myself as a conqueror, as a domineering, essentially a fighter. Whereas I had imagined that I took a divergent path from those other soldiers after 9-11, those guys who were so duped into the war on terror to go turn the Middle East into a parking lot or whatever the hurtful rhetoric was that we said at the time, I had imagined that I was more evolved in that. I had imagined that I went in an entirely different way. And I had a profound spiritual awakening in which I saw myself having met with them kind of on the other side of it all and realized, oh, I... I might have chosen a different path. I might have been using different tactics, so to speak. But, but no, the, the way I'm wielding this faith, the way I'm wielding these ideas, I am out here trying to eradicate Islam just the same. I'm, I'm trying to get rid of Muslims just the same. I don't want them to exist as such. So what does that make me? That, that's, that's the same kind of destructive, domineering way in this world. So I, I have this profound waking up, unfolding kind of experience in a single prayerful moment. And when I come out of it, I'm completely transformed. Instantaneously stand up off the ground where I was praying and I'm completely transformed. And 
we moved. We had the plans had been in place, but we moved to Iraq six weeks after that. And if I had not had that moment, I don't know what my early days in Iraq would have been like. We were we were motivated by humanitarian concerns to move there, but I was clearly going to be taking a lot of this baggage and this way of being with me as I went in. But as it turned out, six weeks later when we moved, I I left all that baggage behind. I mean, a, a significant amount of that baggage behind and entered into Iraq with a completely different posture, a completely different outlook on the world. Now, what I hear in that is akin to the Apostle Paul having a road to Damascus experience where he goes to on the road with one intention and then in a flash, his entire intention and intentionality, his entire way of relating to the other that he was going there to meet is transformed. Now, I, certainly I'm, I'm, I want to be humble in how I make this comparison, but it sounds like it was that same kind of radical reversal. I'm curious, your wife Jessica had been, I'm sure, in deep conversation with you. Was she surprised when you got up from that prayer and had this change of heart when you talked to her about it? How did you share this with her? She had never worn these ideas and belief and culture as, as I had. Um, she had never been the combatant that I had. She wasn't raised in it the way I was. She wasn't affected by the patriarchal dynamics of it like I was. So as I recall it, she was probably somewhat welcoming of it, you know, like it's about time, you know. Uh, she had always been supportive, but even that supportive wife dynamic was was a little bit a part of the culture that we were in. And uh, I think me giving up some of that represented a kind of new freedom for both of us, ultimately. Well, and so let me also say that I think maybe a lot of my listeners in hearing your characterization earlier of, I'm using your words now, you realized that you were going to Iraq to convert the Muslims and basically to eradicate Islam. I think that there are some members of my audience who would say, oh, yes, that is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so let's entertain that for a moment. Given the fact that there are some who will be listening who feel like that that is the calling, how would you speak to that? Like now, why would you say that your task is different than the eradication of other religions or the or the conversion of other religions? And I, I don't want to mischaracterize what you said. So if, I, if I'm characterizing it incorrectly, please do correct me. But how would you speak to that right now? I find myself a bit without words. No one's ever quite asked it like that, and I appreciate it. I, I think it comes back to the context statement that I made before or the vacuum statement that I made before. So I think what I would say, if I was looking into the eyes of someone who said that to me, I would say, tell me about your Muslim friends. Tell me about your Buddhist friends. Tell me about your friends in the LGBTQ community. Tell me, tell me how that's gone for you. And tell me about the depth and the quality and the beauty of those friendships as you've embarked on a sustained effort to sanction and bomb their faith from above. Because more often than not, where that sort of response has come up, I have found a poverty of relationship. We are entertaining the eradication of other people's identity and faith in a vacuum. We have come up with these ideas and we have interpreted things to be such and we have defended our historical narratives in such a way because we don't have relationship. 
because we don't understand. It's not strictly that I'm not saying that we're monsters for thinking such or doing such. I'm saying that we are lacking because we don't know the richness that this diversity of experience and thought and faith and worldview can add to our lives and, and can add to our communities. Well, and let's press into that. You talked about relationship and your organization, the Preemptive Love Coalition, one of its mottos is you're the first in and the last to leave. And what that means is that in addition to building relationships with these people who are vulnerable, you're literally on the lines near where people are being bombed. You're on the lines near where people are in jeopardy, in harm's way. And again, you know, I want to be humble about how I'm saying this. I'm not trying to make you the hero in this situation. I'm trying instead to say that what I'm hearing in the philosophy, the process that you and your organization is bringing, it's radical solidarity. It's willingness to be there in the midst of vulnerability with those who are vulnerable. Am I characterizing that right or would you say it a different way? Yeah, I love that. You, it's like you read our mail. That's that's exactly how we talk internally in private meetings. It And it arose out of this reality that, look, one way of interpreting our story from afar is that we are these adventuring, intrepid people who moved into a foreign country during a war and just continued this cowboy, cavalier kind of behavior until I was getting shot at by ISIS snipers and bombed from above by U.S. military and Iraqi Air Force and whatever. That's not true. And it's not how it's felt on the ground. What it's felt like on the ground is we moved into a new neighborhood and then that neighborhood became our home. And those people became our friends and our family and the people we love most in this world. And when your neighborhood gets attacked and when your homeland gets attacked and when your friends get attacked, you, if love, you do whatever needs to be done to care for those that you love. So somewhere along the way, I don't know what day it happened, but this ceased to be, if ever it was, it ceased to be adventurism. It ceased to be interventionism and it became home, taking care of home. And... As that happened, I think our very sense and definition of home enlarged. So now I don't live in Syria, but I feel deeply as though Syria is my home. I don't live in the LGBTQ shelter in Juarez, Mexico. We spend a lot of our lives and effort and time supporting. But when I walk into the LGBTQ shelter, though I'm not technically and by identity one of their community, they say to us, welcome home because they feel like we are home to them and I feel like they are home to us. So, so our sense of home has expanded as we left home that first time and learned what it would be like to be at home in new ways, in new places. So here's what I'm hearing you saying. So often the model of mission work in the Christian universe is the notion of remote mission work. We raise money here with bake sales, we send it overseas, and we hire missionaries to go overseas. What I'm hearing you saying is that all mission work is local and relational. Am I hearing that? My, my guards go up anytime any of us start saying all. But I think part of where I, part of where I want, I no longer feel, and I feel like we've established this in the conversation, but I, I no longer feel like I am tasked with or interested in obliterating other people's faith. 
doing away with other people's faith, selling my faith. So if that's what we mean by missions, then I just want to distance myself from that altogether. If what we mean by maybe service, I, I do have grave concerns about those people, any people, any of us who are more concerned about serving abroad than we are about living similarly in our own backyard. The fascination and glorification of the exotic over there with those people who are so different than me, who are in the news, who are, you know, of a different faith or country or tribe or politic over there. While meanwhile, I live a, an essentially tribal cloistered life here in my neighborhood at home where I only interact with people who are like me. That, that strikes me as incongruent. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. and we're speaking today with Jeremy Courtney. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're talking with Jeremy Courtney. He's co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition, which works around the world in the process of reconciliation and aid to those communities that are in conflict. Let's talk a little bit about Preemptive Love Coalition. So we've, we've talked about the philosophy now. Let's concretize it. What does it actually look like when Preemptive Love Coalition is working on the ground? There's two main things that we do. We provide emergency relief and we provide jobs. We say we help fast and we provide help that lasts. And we do all this with a big vision to end war. We've lived through enough cycles of war now in Iraq, Syria, Libya, and things that I'm gravely concerned about in the United States right now to feel like we've, we understand the patterns of war. We understand the patterns of how violence passes from one person to another, from one community to another. And so as we work to end war, we use fast aid and jobs that last as, as a meaningful mechanism to cut off the spread of violence from one to another. And we do all of that, relief and jobs, in an overarching framework of reconciliation, peacemaking, what we call community. We try to build a common unity, point to a common unity shared between communities at odds. One of the things that you say on your website is that the end goal is not the aid work. The end goal instead, the red-hot core, you say on your website, is pursuit of peace between communities at odds. It's interesting to me because I think most of the time when you hear about relief work or relief organizations, particularly ones that are that are trying to do good and raise money for causes around the world, they're very concerned with immediate metrics. You know, how many bushels have you given? How many beds have you created? You're creating a different set of metrics. I mean, the, the overall reduction of violence and hatred between peoples is a hard quantity to measure. So when you are raising money, and you, may, it, you also make clear that you don't take political donations, you take private donations, as you're trying to convince people of the value of your work, how do you show them the results of this high-minded sense of peacemaking and harm reduction? Yeah. Well, first of all, we still are very skilled at tracking the tactical metrics. So we can tell you how many bags of food we've delivered. We can tell you how many jobs we've created. 
And we are testing and researching better ways to measure violence reduction and things like that. It's admittedly very hard, uh, especially when you can do so well in a community for so long and one geopolitical decision can essentially thrust us back into a generational cycle of violence. So these are very fragile realities that we live in where some people have significantly more capabilities than others to start a war and leave the rest of us just fending for our lives. We've seen that in our neighborhoods and our friends that we care about for years, sadly. So we are learning and researching and trying to figure out better ways to, to measure violence reduction on the way to ending war. But what I know is if men and women wage war, then men and women can stop. That is seriously, I mean, if, if we're talking about people of faith, whether we're talking about a particular Christian denomination or whether we're talking about Islam or even faiths that don't come from the Abrahamic traditions, we can find that same sort of notion that, that there is a personal responsibility towards the other and that that personal responsibility towards the other is rooted in having some kind of empathy for the other and that ultimately and this has been misinterpreted through, you know, <laughs> centuries. But ultimately, if we look at, at the core of each of these, we can find a message that says, you know, we're supposed to build a community together, you know, even with our others. And we find that in the Jewish scriptures, we find that in Christian scriptures, we find that in, in the Quran, we, we can find that in the Vedas, we can find that in so many places, this notion of building community. So one of the things that you talk about in the, the preemptive love coalition is a love big enough to unmake violence. And I think particularly in America, love is such an easy word to use. So when you talk about love, what do you and your colleagues mean when you talk about love? This comes up fairly regularly. And I, it's one of those things that is very hard still to talk about. I mean, I, I can throw a lot of poetic words at it, but the thing I love to say the most is, well, come with us. Just just come with us. Come see it. That can be hard for a radio show or a podcast to accomplish. But it's action, first and foremost, perhaps. It's, uh, it's not words alone. It's not ideas alone. It's, it's, as you said earlier, it's solidarity. It's presence. Presence is not passive. Presence is an action. And so love that is a presence continually calls us forward deeper and deeper into the fray, deeper and deeper into the suffering. One of our core values is that we press into pain, which keeps us present in hard conversations. It keeps us present in disagreement, and it literally draws us toward the front lines where we are getting bombed and shot at. Why? Because there are people there who matter who are getting bombed and shot at. Th those are some of the markers that I would point to to try and put some flesh around this idea of love big enough to unmake violence. Why do we think it's big enough to unmake violence? Well, I've, I've seen other shows of force and other mechanisms of power deployed on the front lines in an effort to eradicate violence. And my big takeaway from it all is that violence can lead to the reduction of some violence eventually many of us will yield in the face of a greater, more violent, threatening power. But where I think shows of force and bombs and bullets fail ultimately is you can't bomb ideas out of existence. And in fact, some ideas 
only strengthen and reify in the face of such bombings and violence. So an ISIS-type ideology on the one hand or a white nationalist, white terror-type ideology on another hand, those things often retrench and get stronger in the face of brute force. It has left me asking, well, is there a power left strong enough to transform impoverished thinking, that violence, that hatred, that negativity into something positive? And I think it's empathy. It's looking a fellow human in the eye. It's kindness from the one you're supposed to hate or kindness from the one who's supposed to hate you that is the power big enough to change a nation. You said a moment ago that certain people are in a position to make decisions that can unmake years, decades of careful work to build coalitions and peace. We're recording this conversation just a, a few days after a decision was made to pull American troops unilaterally out of northern Syria. And I'm wondering, you know, how this is affecting your work and what you're thinking of in terms of your task and your responsibility in light of this radical change in U.S. policy? It's been an incredibly difficult couple of weeks uh, as a team, as a neighborhood <laughs> of friends who who care and who are now on the run for their lives. We, at this moment, you know, we're thinking 300,000 Kurdish people from northeastern Syria have been forced out of their homes by Turkish bombs, bombs that would not have fallen were it not for the deal struck between the Trump administration and the Turkish presidency. The status quo would have prevented this from happening without necessarily escalating violence, without U.S. troops even needing to be actively engaged in fighting. Just the mere status quo presence of these 50 soldiers, special ops guys on the ground probably would have prevented these ethnic cleansing type realities that we are experiencing and fearing will escalate. Where this goes from here, we don't know. We fear it will get worse and worse and worse. The Kurdish people that we know and love, biggest fear is that they are now stuck between three enemy forces. The Turkish government, the Syrian government, who they've had to beg to come and help. They've struck a deal with the Syrian government, who is their mortal enemy as well. The Turkish government's their mortal enemy. And then you've got a, a rising tide of ISIS ideology and ISIS reconcentration, where we all are very afraid that ISIS will recapture towns, recapture territory, and will reinstitute the caliphate that has wreaked so much havoc on the region for the last five, six years. So our Kurdish friends and other smaller minority groups are stuck in the middle of this three-way battle, and it was entirely preventable. What I would impress upon anyone listening right now is that even in the face of all that complexity, however, we are not useless. We are not helpless. We, we actually have the ability to respond in ways that save lives right now, even in the middle of this tragedy. And so as a team, as an organization, we are on the front lines providing food, grab-and-go bags of food for families who are on the run for their lives. Their houses have been bombed. They've been pushed out into the streets, and they are running from one town to the next in search of safety. And we are there on the front lines getting shot at as teams, handing them bags of food as they go. And then we're also in the Raqqa area providing medical care. So one thing that maybe 
my listeners need to know is, again, let's look at kind of the long history of this region. So we may hear the name the Kurds and not understand that because of Western intervention in the Middle East, we as nations have carved up and created nations almost by kind of drawing lines on the ground in the Middle East. And that has oftentimes led to certain populations being abandoned and isolated in kind of no man's lands. And the Kurds would be one example of that. A a line drawing between Western nations led to the creation of Turkey and Syria and Iraq. But that didn't take into account some of the ethnicities and the long-standing tribal relations and conflicts that were there in the region. And the Kurds got caught in the middle of that. They've they've wanted to have a homeland. They almost got a homeland, a nation of their own, but it's never quite worked out. So they've always been kind of trapped. They don't quite fit. And now, once again, they're being displaced. First of all, do I have that history relatively correct? Yes, with the caveat that if certain Kurdish voices were in the room with us right now, they would maybe take a little exception to the idea that they got caught in the middle or that this was somehow an oversight or an accident. Many believe it was intentional. That they, they It's not just that we didn't know we were dividing up the Kurdish homeland, but many believe, and it, it almost doesn't even matter if it's true at this point, the fact that they believe that we carved them up on purpose helps determine everything that happens next. Put a minority group in Turkey fighting for a homeland, and their one version of telling the story is that it will forever keep Turkey a little bit weak and a little bit at odds with itself. Put a minority group in Syria fighting for a homeland, and it will forever keep Syria a little bit weak and a little bit fighting with itself. Same Iraq, same Iran. And then we also prevent the Kurds themselves from ever having a homogenous, unified nation state. So that's one part of the Kurdish narrative that I just feel obligated to try and represent here, that there are people who believe this wasn't an accident, but they were carved up on purpose. But those narratives, they can become very powerful in the the political landscape. And so that leads into then one group's freedom fighting kind of population is another group's terrorist organization. And it depends partly on where you are willing to plant your flag in order to have a narrative that plays out along the kind of clean good guy, bad guy lines that we're talking about. And we saw this happen in the 1980s in Central and South America. We see this happen in Israel-Palestine, and we're seeing this happen in the Middle East. And you you raised the notion that even if it's not true, the perception that it's true becomes very powerful for people who are on the ground. And that's part of what you're talking about, is that unless we are actually willing to be in the room and listen to those stories, to be vulnerable and available to those people, to hear their pain— we will not understand their motivations and we won't understand how much they're willing to entrench to, to protect what they feel is theirs and to survive what they feel is a hardship or a wrong against them. Am I in the right ballpark yeah. here for kind of how you're thinking about these things? Yeah, totally. Okay. And so part of what you're doing is you're trying to listen to those narratives and to demonstrate a, a different way of being in the face of those narratives? Or Help me understand kind of how the presence of people who are willing to love in that moment makes a difference. Mm. I'll I'll do it by way of story. Our friend Zito is Yazidi and experienced genocide at the hands of ISIS. ISIS being a a Sunni Muslim, you know, theological entity that recruited people from various ethnic groups. So you could be Kurdish, you could be Arab, Chechen, whatever, and join up with ISIS. So 
Zito and his family are from a different religion called the Yazidi ethno-religious group, and they were basically seen as Satan worshipers in ISIS's eyes. So they were targeted for genocide. The spoils of their families and their villages, you know, were, were basically captured by ISIS. Women turned into slaves, boys turned into young recruits and fighters. And it was just a horrific, horrific thing to live through in 2014 and in some ways to this day. When we first met Zito, he was on the run for his life, had just escaped ISIS genocide. Um, members of his wider family were immediately killed. He was left defending some members of his family and his village against ISIS before finally being able to escape himself. And in the early days when we showed up, our team is diverse. So we showed up with Kurds, with Arabs, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, Muslims, period, being not of his religious group. And without regard for who was sitting in front of him, Christian, American, Muslim, Sunni, Shia, Kurd, Arab, whatever, he started our relationship and, and others in his family started our relationship in a place of deep trauma, deep pain, and a single story that they had been betrayed by Muslims and they had been betrayed by Arabs and they had been betrayed by Kurds. And so in expressing his pain, he would, you know, vent out and yell out to the room, focusing his energies mostly on us as the white Americans in the room and just disregarding the others. He would say, all Arabs are ISIS. All Muslims are terrorists, you know, things like this. He was in pain. He was in trauma. And we didn't seek to police his pain or police his trauma. His family had just been slaughtered. And our Muslim friends, our Arab friends, Kurdish friends sat in his pain and in his trauma and let him be. They loved him. They said, I'm sorry. But without saying, I'm sorry, yeah, but I'm a Muslim and I'm not like that. Or let me define my side of the faith. Or let me just remind you that I'm from this ethnic group and we don't feel that way. They just let him be and they themselves had the confidence to just be in his pain and in his presence. And that was our life for months and months and then years and years. And, you know, early on, it was essentially in his pain post-genocide, he would, they could all go rot in hell for all he cared. They, they were all the bad guy. And then somewhere along the way, him and his community signed up, him and some of his friends signed up to join us as drivers. We paid them to give them a modicum of earnings to be our, our you know, drivers to drive our trucks of food into these areas where Arab, Muslims, Sunnis were just getting liberated from ISIS occupation. And when they showed up, Zito, his Yazidi family, having been freed for years now, having benefited from our kindness for years now, show up in a war zone with us to deliver food to Sunni Arab Muslims who have been occupied by Sunni Arab ISIS, a light went on for them. And they looked into the eyes of other victims who were of the same class, of the same tribe, of the same network, of the same religion, and they saw humanity. They saw past the labels, they saw past the categories, and they saw fellow humans suffering under this group called ISIS. And they came back transformed. It, it, they, they suffered so much worse than we did. 
We didn't know that ISIS was so bad that they would even do this to their own. What kind of monsters must ISIS be that they would even, we thought they were just targeting us because we were different. But we learned that no one can be like ISIS enough <laughs> to be outside of the scope of their terror. And fast forward even from there, now months and years on, and now they say things like Muslims are our brothers, Arabs are our brothers, these Kurds are our brothers, because our team and others have just stayed with them in the pain and in the, in the promise of what we can become together. So that's a long story to just say, somehow choosing to be together is what I believe is the most powerful force for transforming our ideas for good. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Jeremy Courtney. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front lines, on the ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Jeremy Courtney. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. They work around the world to bring reconciliation through the power of love to areas in conflict and communities that are at deep odds with one another. So we've been talking throughout this conversation about the big ideas and about the work on the ground of the Preemptive Love Coalition. We will have you back, Jeremy Courtney, to talk about your book, Love Anyway, because I really want to dig more into this story. But for right now, in our last few minutes together, I'd like to talk a little bit about what our listeners could really do if they have been listening to us and stayed with us through this conversation, and they now feel a little bit of tug that maybe they want to get involved somehow what are some concrete ways that listeners can begin to get involved in either uh, your organization or these wider problems? We've been developing a lot of tools that we've put all on a website at loveanyway.com. Love Anyway is in many ways a, an update of our philosophy that started, you know, at the beginning of this whole thing in Iraq so many years ago. In those early days, I would describe our philosophy as love first, ask questions later. It was sort of a jump in, what's the worst that could happen? As we aged, as we moved through the war, as we moved through life and just grew up some, the, the sheen wore off, the naivete the, the sense that we'd just been launched out of this cannon in love and all was going to, you know, somehow be worth it got a lot more complicated. And there came a point where, never mind ask questions later, the, the answers did not wait for the questions. The answers just showed up. And I just remember one day along the way, sitting in the midst of all this conflict going, okay, well, I, I guess I don't even have to ask the questions. I, I now know what love 
cost. They'll, they'll kidnap your friends. They'll, they'll destroy your village. They'll rape your daughters and they'll leave everyone else for dead. I don't know if I want to love anymore. And a, a friend spoke angelic prophetic words in that moment that essentially challenged me to not give up and dared me, asked me, would you press in? Would you abandon this all or would you accept the challenge to press in and learn how to love anyway? And I didn't know the gift that, that those two words would be at that time, love anyway, but it, it essentially became a mantra for the second half of life. Because I think a lot of us, motivated by faith, motivated by a vision for a more beautiful society, we launched out in the early days of life, believing we could change the world. And we got crashed on the shores of, of all the answers rushing in. That What's that Ty, Mike Tyson quote? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. You know, we got punched in the face. And a lot of us just got crashed on the shores of our own idealism and chose not to love anymore. We adopted cynicism. We settled into just kind of a middle-class suburban, that's the way things have always been, nothing can be done about it kind of philosophy. And love anyway has given us a way through that. And we have now been building tools around it and offer those up as a, a tool set for others who want to press into the the, the anywayness of love, the the complexity, the pain, and the, the worthiness of still laying our lives on the line for the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. So a couple quick tools. Uh, book, Love Anyway, is available there. We've got a 30-minute documentary film that's available on the website. It's watch for free, share for free. We re recreated the film as knowing that it can be difficult to talk in family and friendship networks about some of these hard things that are tearing us apart right now. Politics, foreign policy, racism, the fact that all the problems aren't really just out there with those people, that, but that we are the problem. I am the problem. I've got these sort of conquering, bigoted ideas running through my own blood. And how am I going to get that cured? So we made the film as a challenging, provocative conversation piece that, that a family or a church group or a mosque or a political action group could watch together and let someone else say the hard things for you. Let, let someone else provoke the conversation and then the community can just interact around the 30-minute film. There's some other tools there. Uh, some We've got a small group program that aims to do better than some of our religious small group programs have ever been able to do for us or our affinity group programs have ever been able to do for us. So our small group program is, is meant to be a small group big enough for us all. How can you bring Christians and Muslims together to still be fully Christian and fully Muslim, but meet in the middle and listen and learn? How can you bring LGBTQ community together and those whose religious beliefs tell them that that is not allowed how can we meet in a place of mutuality to listen and learn from one another? There's other tools, but th those are the, the bulk of what I would center on right now. And so 
as the listener is hearing this, I think that some are going to be very enlivened and feel very empowered by these ideas. And there are going to be some that will be very frightened by these ideas. And in particular, those that say, I'm not supposed to sit in a room with a Muslim and let the Muslim stay Muslim. I'm not supposed to stay in the room with the person who's LGBTQIA and let that person stay who they are, because who they are is fundamentally wrong, whether we're talking about a different religious belief or a different lifestyle or even a different political party. It's my job to change that. And if I don't change that, I'm letting down the kingdom. And so I'll just ask you again, how would you speak to that person who's feeling right now, not hope, but terror or a a sense of morbid responsibility in the, in the face of what you've just said? I think the first step for most of us is relationship. And so someone introduced me to a new word for humility a couple of weeks ago. We've got a band with us out on tour right now as we tour behind the film and the book. And the very first night of tour, the band led out with a song. And the song went like this. Give me doubt that I might see my neighbor as myself. And the band's name is The Brilliance. I urge you to check out their work on Spotify or wherever you find music. But that, that word, give me doubt that I might see my neighbor as myself, just struck me as so profound. I grew up hearing about humility all the time. Somewhere along the way, I wonder if the word just sounded too familiar. So they come in and they say, give me doubt that I might love my neighbor as my... Well, you change that formula a little bit and it it's got me asking... Can I even see my neighbor as myself? Can I even accept Jesus's command to love my neighbor as myself if I'm certain? What we want is certainty in life. What we need is doubt. And so before the question of letting down the kingdom and conversion and things like that, I would ask questions about certainty. What's, what's the value of certainty? And what's the, what's the poison of certainty? What's the value of doubt? Humility, if you prefer. And what's the worst that could happen with a little bit of doubt? In this conversation, you have been very transparent about the fact that this work has cost you. You have relationships that you have seen horrible pain the eyes of others, and probably you have witnessed face-to-face some horrible pain. It's clear that you're continuing the work, so I'm going to ask you a question that I ask a lot of my guests, but I, I mean it now in a very particular way, because for some of my guests, pain and hope are more theoretical, but I'm going to ask very practically, what is it that keeps you hopeful in the face of what you've seen? The faces of those that I do it with that we do it with, this is not a disembodied, this is the essence of what I learned about growing up called incarnation. To, to put body, to take on body, to take on flesh, this is an incarnated experience of love. And so as I incarnate ideas or, or values or realities and I see them incarnated in others, it's, it's hopeful because we're dealing with real people. We're not just dealing with ideas. I never feel more hopeful than when I'm with the people in service, 
in pain, in rebuilding. I mean, it's brutal. I don't mean it's glossy or it's fun. Sometimes it's very much not those things. But there's something about agency. Uh, There's something about action. There's something about movement that brings hope. There's something about stasis, entropy, boredom, helplessness that steals hope. And in as much as a lot of us just watch these things play out on cable news or on Twitter, that can leave us with a sense of helplessness. We don't feel as though we have agency to affect anything. And the loss of agency parallels the growth of hopelessness. The execution of agency grows hopefulness. And so get in relationship, get with people, diversify our lives, incarnate our ideas, live them out in real bodily form, put our bodies on the line for other people, and hope will increase. Well, Jeremy Courtney, I say to my children and I also say to my students that if a Christian is around and the vulnerable feel less safe and more in danger, that we're misunderstanding our task and we're not, we're not doing our faith right. In this conversation, I have been given a lot of renewed strength for carrying on the work that we are called to do, which is to love our enemies and to, to break swords into plowshares. I just want to say thank you so much for the work that you're doing with the, the Preemptive Love Coalition, and thank you for taking time today to speak to me and my listeners. I would love to have you back to talk about your book, Love Anyway, but for right now, I just want to say how profoundly grateful I am for your time. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking today with Jeremy Courtney. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Preemptive Love Coalition. You can find out more about his organization at loveanyway.com. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.